0: This week, it's our first episode of 2022, and we're headed to New Orleans, Louisiana, right here in the U.S. to discuss the crazy case of the Jeff Davis Eight, also known as the Jennings Eight. The bodies of eight women were found in swamps and canals surrounding Jennings, Louisiana. And just when you think it's a serial killer, it's something entirely different. Listener discretion is always advised. All aboard the Midnight Train Podcast. (laughs) Hello, passengers, and fuck 2021, and fuck COVID, right? And we probably just, you know, destroyed any possibility of any new listeners who are sensitive listening to it, and uh, yeah, we'll see you guys later. It's fine. To the rest of you, welcome to the Midnight Dream Podcast, where we bring the dark to light. We make fun of and joke about creepy shit while bringing you as much information on each topic as possible. Yes, we are a comedy podcast, and shit can get pretty dark. So if you're not into that, listen, no hard feelings. We get it. It's cool. But if you are, thanks for being just as twisted and screwed up as we are. I am your host, the conductor of The Cryptic, Jonathan Sayer. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you're too kind. You're too kind. Oh, no. You're too kind. Too kind. And with me is, uh, well, nobody, because fuck COVID. Yes, that's right. Uh, as I mentioned in the bonus episode for New Year's, uh, Jeff is at home. His entire family basically has, uh, COVID, and, uh, Logan is also recovering from something as well. And so we wish them the best. So make sure you guys just shoot them a, a text or whatever it is, a, a message or whatever. I don't know if you have their phone number to send them a text or not. <laughs> That'd be amazing if everyone just blew them up. Do you guys want their phone numbers? I'm just kidding. Anyway, um, yeah. So wish them the best. I'm, they're feeling better and whatnot. And uh, I'm sure they'll be fine. And uh, also, you know, Mr. Moody out there doing the research for us. One of them came right off the rip and he's doing better. You know, and it'll, it'll come along. It's 2022. Right? Double deuce. 2000 double deuce. So let's see what happens. All I know is is that 2021 can literally suck my ass. Um, It was bad enough until New Year's Eve, Betty White was taken from us at the age of 99, just a couple of weeks away from turning 100 years old. And uh, I don't know. I've mentioned it a few times on the show before. I'm like obsessed with Betty white and she, yeah, that sucked. That was horrible. And it was just the final stab from 2021. And like, <laughs> we're taking her, you know, you fucking whatever. So listen, we'll save all the business stuff until the end. Let's get into this and let's get spooky. So listen, turn on the lights, adjust our seats, grab a drink. And let, we're going to get a little weird in this one, folks. So, uh, Here's a toast, all you beautiful motherfuckers. You crazy, beautiful bastards. Listen, hopefully you guys liked the new intro to the show. Um, You know, we it's getting really, really hard to um, use anything you find on the Internet whatsoever. So, you know, I'm just like, screw it. You know, Jeff and I were musicians and we were like, you know, let's just make our own. You know, that way, everything you hear on the show from here on out, is just going to be original material. So that way we don't get any copyright problems. You know what I mean? Even if it's the smallest, you can go to something that says like, you know, free it's free check out these free samples and you'll go in and be like oh man it's badass like if you guys remember the uh, the drink pop that we had before like man this is really cool and it's like free but it's not free you you gotta pay for it and you should and we should everybody should pay for that stuff because somebody made that out there and it's hard work and whatnot so make sure you're doing that if you do happen to for all you other podcasts don't just go take stuff you know what i mean pay for it so that way it doesn't come back and bite you in the ass later and you're helping somebody who's you know creative out there so listen happy new year right yeah we hope uh, your Christmas or whatever holiday you chose to celebrate was a good one. Seriously, like whatever it was, hope it was good. Mine was horrible um, just because, um, yeah, it was stupid. And, and I talked about it in the bonus or whatever, so I'm not going to get into it. As you probably know, we did take the week off to be with our families. And this week, we're back with another banger, as the cool kids say. We are hopping back into the dark, twisted world of unsolved true crime. The best and only way to serve that horrible cold dish. You know, we, you know you love it. And we love it too. Not that we love the murders and stuff, but it's the unsolved shit that we're like, you know, we want to get in there. Is it this one? (laughs) Nope. (laughs) That sounds about that. That was my 2021 right there. Anyway, that was my Christmas too. Anyway, so we're getting back into this and, uh, of course, not in a weird, you know, we're sitting alone in front of our, you know, computer masturbating to unsolve terrible crimes sort of way. But we do love this stuff. But it, it's more of a, gee whiz, Mr. Wilson, that's interesting. And I'd like to learn more. And hopefully you guys are like that as well. And with that out of the way, let's get into today's episode. It's the Jennings 8, a.k.a. Like I said, uh, it's also known as the Jeff Davis 8. And you'll find out why. Because it's based on, you know, where the bodies and stuff were located. So the Jennings 8, sometimes also referred to as the Jeff Davis 8, like I just said, is a series of unsolved murders in Jefferson Davis Parish in Louisiana between 2005 and 2009. And for those of you who are wondering, no, Modi, (laughs) Modi, fuck that joke. Moody was not living there yet. So he's actually cleared on this one. Um, This one. That's right. Two of the victims had their throats slit. The other six were uh, actually in such a bad state of decay that a cause of death could not be determined. But asphyxiation is thought to be the cause. So pretty much everyone involved in this is all fucked up and bad. Law enforcement would have a uh, have us believe that a serial killer was on the loose. But um, is that really what happened? Or was something crazier going down? And this is insane. And when, I know we talk about a lot of insane shit on here, but this one just, first of all, I didn't know a lot about it. And then it's like, wait a minute, what? And you'll find out. Yeah, you'll find out. Because cause then it's like this. So you're probably going to hear that a lot today. So if that annoys you, I apologize in advance. But I found the button. So you guys should at least give me, you know, some kudos for that. Okay, let's take a look at the unfortunate victims first. The first body found was that of Loretta Lynn Shizan Lewis. I'm hoping I I pronounced that correctly. She was 28 and last seen on May 17th of 2005 in Jennings, Louisiana. Her body was found in the Grand Marais. I think it's Marais. I don't know. Horrible with this canal on uh, May 20th. So just uh, what, three, three days later and floating in Grand Marais uh, canals, East Fork, a few miles southwest of Jennings. And listen, and if you guys are going to be like, oh, it's pronounced this way. I get it. It's fine. You know what I'm talking about. If, if you if you can correct me, then you know what I mean, right? Right. And if you can't, then you're just as dumb as I am. So let's go with it. She was partially clothed and shoeless, shoeless. Shoeless? Shoeless. So she had no shoes on and partially clothed. The advanced decomposition caused difficulty identifying and collecting evidence. And an autopsy found Loretta had no physical injuries. A toxicology report showed high levels of drugs and alcohol in her system, but no cause of death was determined. Investigators believe she may have been in the canal for three to four days. And you can imagine down in Louisiana what those canals can do to a uh, a dead body. Yuck. (laughs) The second victim, Ernestine Patterson, was a mother of four and a lifelong Jennings resident. The 30-year-old was last seen on June 16, 2005. On June 18, her body was discovered in a drainage canal off LA Highway 102. She was partially clothed and her throat had been slit. The death was ruled a homicide, and two people were arrested and charged with second-degree murder, but were later released due to lack of evidence. I'm telling you, it's going to get old real quick. (laughs) Um, She worked at Iota State University. The third victim was Kristen Elizabeth Gary Lopez. Kristen was last seen um, alive by friends and family on March 6, 2007. By all published accounts, Kristen was involved in a high-risk lifestyle of drugs and prostitution because it was not unusual to not hear from her for extended amounts of times. She was not reported missing until 10 days later. Ugh, it sucks. And you'll find out that that's kind of the correlation with every uh, all the victims in this. is, and you'll, you'll see. It's just fucking weird. On March 18th, a fisherman discovered Lopez's utterly nude body in the, oh boy, Petit jean? petite jean, petite jean, Petit jean, Ooh, I feel like that's better because it's Louisiana, right? Come on down there. So Petit Jean, when we say that. Canal, a rural area near uh, Cherokee Road um, off of LA 99, about uh, 10 miles south of the town of Welsh. Investigators felt her body had been placed in that location but killed elsewhere. According to autopsy results, the cause of death for Kristen Gary Lopez is undetermined. However, toxicology results showed elevated levels of drugs and alcohol in her system. In May 2007, Frankie Richard and his niece, Hannah Connor, were arrested in connection with Lopez's death. Richard and Connor were also questioned about the other deaths before Lopez's body was found. Richard was reportedly seen with three of the victims in the last days of their lives. Charges were eventually dropped due to insufficient evidence and conflicting witness statements. Remember that name. Frankie Richard, just, just remember that name as we go through this. Okay. Keep that name in the back of your head. Maybe that's what I'll do. Maybe every time his name pops up, I'll, uh, I'll hit the button. What do you think? No, because it mentions it a lot anyway. All right. I'll try to use it a more sparingly. <laughs> also arrested in May, 2007 was Tracy L. Shazam. The uh, police booked her on accessory after the fact charges. Shazam was the person who reported Kristen missing. Remember that name Shazam? Cause I messed the, the name up earlier. Mm-hmm. Not the same person you'll see. Yeah. Fucked up. Investigators believe she knew where the body was when she made the report, like Richard and Connor Charges were dropped against Tracy Chazan due to lack of evidence and conflicting statements. Ah. I felt like that deserved that one. Whitney Charlene Dubois, 26, was last seen on May 10th of uh, 07. Her remains were found on May 12th, 07, at the intersection of Bobby and Earl Duhan Roads. <laughs> what what are you guys doing in Louisiana? Like, <laughs> where, where, where where you guys want to go to? Uh, that news store over there on Bobby and Earl Duhon Roads? I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense. Approximately five miles outside of Jennings, Louisiana. According to the family, Whitney enjoyed listening to music, absolutely adored her daughter, was tough on the outside despite her vulnerabilities within, and left a lasting impression on all those who knew and loved her. Oh, sounds like a sweet girl. The nude body of Whitney Dubois was found on May 12th 07, near the intersection of, like, uh, the, the, <laughs> Bobby and Arrow, like we said, which is right outside of Jennings. Investigators believe she had been dead a couple of days, quote-unquote. Officials never determined the cause of death, but high levels of alcohol and drugs were found in her body. Starting to see a connection here, right? Mm-hmm. Her family has doubts about the investigation into her death. Whitney's sister, Brittany Jones, wonders, quote, "'Why haven't we been questioned? Why haven't we been asked? When was the last time we saw our sister?' where uh where her whereabouts was i'm just reading this where her whereabouts was this is what she says uh why haven't we been asked about the evidence why haven't we been contacted so she's i mean all valid questions you know if if someone in your family dies and they're not coming to ask you anything seems kind of weird you know unless they just don't give a shit and again you know when you have the people that are on the lower rungs of society you know the uh the police and officials tend to kind of turn a blind eye because, you know, they're they're people assumed to not care about them because, oh, well, they're drug dealers or drug users or prostitutes or whatever. And it's fucking stupid. People are people, folks. You know what I'm saying? Lolita Duquette, her aunt, believes Whitney and the other victims were dismissed as women who lived high-risk lifestyles involving drugs and prostitution. Right. So just what I said, except she believes the same thing. And most people do, unless you're an asshole. Anyway. 23-year-old Laconia Chantel Muggy Brown, as her nickname, Muggy, was last seen on May 27th, 2008, around 2 a.m. And on May 29th, a Jennings police officer discovered her body lying on Rocco Road, leading to the police firing range. Okay, so the road led to the firing range. Although in a rural area, Brown's body was the first found within the city limits of Jennings. She would become the fifth victim of the Jennings Eight. Laconia was clothed. Okay, muggy here. She was clothed but had no shoes on. Kind of like one of the other victims. Actually a couple of them, right? Yeah. Her throat had been slit and someone had doused her body with bleach. Now, and why do we do that? Because we're trying to clean up, right? Right. I don't why do I say we like I'm involved in that? They, they do that. <laughs> we don't do shit. Anyway, Brown was wearing a white uh tank top style shirt stained with white, or uh, stained from white to pink. Police believe the stain to be blood and that some type of liquid had diluted it from red to pink, probably the bleach. They discovered more evidence of potential leads in this case than in any other previous deaths since Brown's body was found about six hours after it was left on the road. All right. So they're starting to piece these things together a little bit. You know what I mean? And obviously they're thinking some strange shit here. Laconia's family stated that she may have known something horrible was about to happen to her and that she was living in fear just days before her death. She was a lifelong resident of Jennings and attended Jennings High School. Next is Crystal Shea Benoitino. She was 23. She was last seen on August 29th of 2008. Her remains were found on September 11th, 2008, near a dry irrigation canal a few miles from Jennings, Louisiana. I mean, nothing good happens on September 11th, does it? Ever. Hopefully none of you guys have birthdays on that. Because if it is, I'm going to give you a different birthday. How about just September the 12th? I mean, that works. That's your new birthday. Yeah. You'll probably feel better about it, right? Yeah. Crystal was employed with Sonic, and I'm I'm assuming that's uh, the fast food place, in Lake Arthur until May 2008 when she was moved to Jennings. She enjoyed spending time with her daughter, fishing, singing, and listening to music. She was a people person who also enjoyed spending time with her friends. It seems like a nice person. According to her parents, Shay was diagnosed with bipolar at age 12 and started using drugs early to cope with this illness. And that sucks. I, uh, I myself have, have been di- diagnosed with bipolar, which if you're a longtime listener, you guys know I talk about it all the time. Mental health is huge for this show. Like we try to talk about it and promote mental health. And if you are having any kind of problems or whatever, this is just a side note. Nothing to do with what we're talking about. Get a hold of somebody. You can um, literally call somebody local. Get, get help. Truthfully. Like get help, talk to someone. It's the best thing you could possibly do for yourself, your friends, your family. Just do that, all right? You know you can better help is out there right now. There's all kinds of different online uh, communities you can join and shit like that. But make sure you do that. Luckily, my bipolarity, I have uh, I have a lot of really good friends that tell me when I'm fucking acting like an asshole. So that's <laughs> that's good. <laughs> anyway, on September 11th, 2008, hunters reported a foul smell in a wooded area to authorities. The remains of Crystal Shea were found around 3 p.m. on the Lacour Road levee off L.A. Highway 1126, just a few miles southeast of Jennings. Due to the advanced state of decomposition, she was not identified with DNA until nearly two months later on September 7th of '08 her death was ruled a homicide although the cause of death and toxicology reports have not been released to the public which is weird that they would actually hold on to that you know what i mean because uh she was uh, she was 23 i just think it's weird that they didn't release that uh, well it's probably because of the ongoing investigation so whatever but you'll find out why well, I, I doubt that as we go through this crystal who went by shay was married and had a young daughter she also knew many of the other victims including brittany gary <laughs> Yes, you'll find that out. There's connections between all these ladies. 17-year-old Brittany Gary became the seventh and youngest victim. Yuck, that sucks. Brittany walked out of the family dollar store in Jennings, never to be seen alive again. Sometime after 5.30 p.m. that day, she was abducted. 13 days passed as her family and concerned public held out hope that Brittany was safe and would be located soon. Sadly, on November 15, 2008, her deceased body was found in a grassy area outside Jennings. According to her family, Brittany loved to swim, hang out with her friends, and listen to music. She enjoyed spending time with her friends and family, and was a friendly and loving person. She was also trusted by the third victim, uh, Christine Gary Lopez. Uh, trusted? Yeah, she was trusted. Like they were, but they knew each other, right? She also knew several of the other victims, so she, along with the other one, they they all you'll you'll come to find out with this whole story here. It's not like, and I get. Okay, I get like in uh, like bigger cities and stuff like that, that like, you know, when it comes to like prostitution, that's, you know, some of the girls may know each other and stuff like that. This is a lot closer than that, though. So you, you, yeah, just keep listening. Um, Nicole Jean, uh, is it Jean? I say Jean. Uh, Giori, I'm probably pronouncing that all fucked up. It looks like Nicole Jean Guillory. And that's probably what it is. We'll just see Guillory. Okay. She was 26, was last seen on um, August 16th of 2009. Her remains were discovered on August 19th, 2009, near the westbound I-10 exit in Egan, Louisiana. She was a resident of Lake Arthur, and according to her family, enjoyed listening to music and loved being outdoors. Nicole's remains were discovered, again, on um, August 19th by a highway worker mowing the grass. She was left between mile markers 72 and 73 near the westbound I-10 Egan exit between Crowley and Jennings in Acadia Parish. Mark Dawson, Acadia Parish coroner, ruled the death of Nicole, murder by probable asphyxia. All right. Oh, boy. That sucks. 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 Anyway, according to Nicole's mother, shortly before her daughter's disappearance, she'd asked her what kind of icing she wanted for her birthday cake. Nicole replied it didn't matter because she wouldn't see her birthday. Unfortunately, her premonition was correct. Her body was found just days before her birthday. She also confided in her mom that police killed the other young women, and it would only be a matter of time before she ended up dead too. Holy shit! That's what I'm talking about. Starting to unravel here, folks, and it's super fucked up. Anyway, what the fuck is going on down in Louisiana? Come on. Okay, so those are the unfortunate victims in the case. All right, so did a serial killer kill them? In December 2008, officials formed a multi-agency investigative team, um, also known as MAIT or MATE. (laughs) I don't know why you'd call it that. Um, Of federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies to solve the killings. At the time, there were seven dead women, and the reward for information leading to the guilty party's arrest was increased from $35,000 to $85,000. From the outset, the task force was searching for a serial killer. Quote, it is the collective opinion of all agencies involved in this investigation, said then Jefferson David Parish Sheriff Ricky Edwards, who was flanked by FBI agents, Louisiana State Police and sheriffs from neighboring parishes at a press conference announcing the task force inception. Goes on to say, quote, that these murders may have been committed by a common offender. Aha, they're saying there's a serial killer. In 2012, the new Jefferson Davis sheriff claimed they still had no evidence that these deaths were all related or even homicides. So now he's coming back and saying, well, well, you know, now he may be technically correct, but most find this incredibly hard to believe, given the evidence and connections. At the time, most people chalked this up to the work of a serial killer preying on sex workers. And if you're interested in serial killers, you'll know that this is not unusual, like I mentioned earlier. Many serial killers get started by killing sex workers, as they are viewed as less important and less likely to be missed. Fucking bullshit. It just goes to show their mentality. But the problem is, is that they they weren't wrong. You know, like if you look at the God, so many different um, murderers and serial killers back in the day. Like they, that's what they did. They'd pick off um, prostitutes and homeless people and things like that, who just you know they didn't think they'd show up on the radar. Like what the fuck is a guy's name? The Green Green River. That dude. What was it? Thirty some people he killed and they were all prostitutes and he went on forever because he just thought he'd never get caught you know piece of shit fuck him too fuck all serial killers let's be honest like no none of them are cool i'm gonna say something here this is not going to be a mm, taken well i would assume i understand because i'm enamored with the psychology behind serial killers murderers things like that um more so like the unsolved stuff because I really... That's why we do the unsolved stuff because we really want to find out what the hell happened, who did it, get some closure for the family, so on and so forth. But these... There are certain people out there that are like infatuated with particular serial killers. And to me, I'm sorry, that's kind of fucked up and disgusting. You know, like I have a friend and I'm not going to mention her name here. I love her to death. She's a longtime friend, but she is infatuated with Ted Bundy. And I'm like, why? Why? And it's just a weird thing to me. And you may be too. That's fine. If you are into that, it's not fine, really. What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Anyway, to each their own, I guess. I just find it weird. That's all. That's it. You do you, I guess. Just don't become a serial killer yourself. That's all I ask. Okay. So killers believe they can easily get away from the murders of, you know, with the murders of women who partake in this work line because nobody cares about them. Like I just said over and over again, as far as suspects, suspects in this go, some were arrested and released, as we mentioned earlier. So they grab him and go, ah, nope. However, one man believes that this was not the work of a serial killer. Writer Ethan Brown spent several years investigating this case and had discovered some interesting things in the process. So, uh, you know, buckle up, bitches. This is about to be a crazy ride. In one article he wrote for Medium.com, Ethan Brown says, quote, Over the past two years, I have obtained and reviewed hundreds of pages of task force witness interviews, the homicide case files on several of the victims, the the Jeff Davis Parish Sheriff's offices, and Jeff Davis Parish District Attorney's files on all of the victims, federal and state court records, and the complete personnel files of the cops and sheriff's deputies at the center of the case. I have interviewed friends and family of all eight victims, as well as some of the possible suspects. So this that we're going to be talking about here comes from um, Ethan Brown and his investigation into this whole thing. Okay. And it is fucking wild, like wild, like holy shit. I was going through the research and going through everything that Moody sent over to me because uh, I don't know if you guys know how this works. Moody kind of mocks up and does the initial research. And I go through and kind of fix things and add things and make it more, you know, tonable for me. So when I go through and read it or whatever, and I'm just sitting here going, what the fuck? It's insane. It's insane. Insane. Seen in the membrane. All right. So the details of the Jeff Davis 8 case can be murky. And again, this is all coming from him here. The connections between victims, suspects, and police tangled. My investigation, he says, however, casts serious doubt on the theory that the Jeff Davis 8 is the work of a serial killer. Hmm. Where are you going with this here, Ethan? Brown goes on to say, Quote, one fact is clear. Local law enforcement is far too steeped in misconduct and corruption. And this extends to the task force, which is dominated by detectives and deputies from the sheriff's office, to run an investigation with the integrity that the murdered women and their families deserve after nearly a decade in which no one has been brought to justice. Mm-hmm. He's pissed and he should be ah, fucking ugh. anyway, you'll see this is just like dirty cops. That's that's where we're going with this. And you'll find out it's just fucking weird. One reason Brown doesn't believe this was the work of a serial killer is the connections between all of the victims. Generally, serial killers, killers, serial killers, my mouth. Sorry, I'm still stuffy. All right. Yeah, I'm still stuffy from whatever I had. So I apologize if I'm sounding like, you know, like this the entire time. However, the women themselves all knew one another intimately here. Okay. Some were related by blood, such as cousins Kristen, Gary, Lopez, and Brittany, Gary, or lived together. Gary... Actually bunked down with Crystal Benoit in South Jennings um, just a uh, just before being killed in 2008. So she was actually staying with her. They solicited prostitution at the uh, Boudreaux Inn, a now shuttered motel in Jennings that with uh, that in that with its sloping blue metal roof and nondescript white facade could be mistaken for a storage facility. The inn was ideally situated in Jennings Heady uh, heady Drugs and Sex Trade, just off a 400-mile stretch of Interstate Interstate 10, connecting Houston to New Orleans. Favored by marijuana and cocaine traffickers and prescription pill doctor shoppers and cops were there on a near-nightly basis for busts. Loretta Lewis, the first victim, was the subject of several complaints to the police based on her activity at the inn. At the end, in the end, you know, the end, the place they're at. See, I'm sick, so I'm like, <laughs> in. Mean, there's no D, it's I-N-N. Jesus, this cold thing is stupid. Fuck you, COVID. Not that I had COVID. I don't think, I don't know, maybe. Brown also says, quote, it was simply that the tra- uh, they traded their bodies at the same address. According to my reporting, all but one of the victims, Ernestine Patterson, was associated with the same fixture of the Jennings underworld. A 50 year, a 58 year old rig worker turned strip club owner named Frankie Richard. So this is fucked up. He actually talked to Frankie Richard, who seems to me that he's pretty like dead center in the middle of this fucking thing. But anyway, he goes on and says, uh, quote, we shared something, he said of the murdered women. This is Frankie. His uh, voice so raspy, it sounded as though he had been gargling rocks, which is fucking weird. Can you imagine? (laughs) How does that sound, gargling rocks? That sounds gross, doesn't it? Quote, when we were at the lowest point of our life and no one wanted to have anything to do with us, we had something to do with each other. And that means something to me. Them girls were my friends, no matter how fucking low my life was. And I was their friend, no matter... How fucking low their life was. Okay, so Richard saying that they were all friends. You know, Richard described the city of Jennings when uh, the killings began. Quote: It was wide open. The drugs, the prostitution, the bars, the crooked cops. Mm-hmm. Since the early 1990s, there have been nearly 20 unsolved homicides, including the slain eight women in the Jefferson Davis Parish. A statistic any competent sheriff's department would both uh, would regard as both a shallow clearance rate and an astonishing, astonishingly. astonishingly High murder rate for a small area. Yeah, it's a little ass place and 20 unsolved murders. Are you fucking kidding me? Like any other freaking, you know, police department in any other little small town be like, this is unacceptable. As for suspects, Brown had found several while going through the reports from the task force and interviewing witnesses. In 2007, Frankie Richard himself was briefly charged in the Lopez killing, but those charges were dropped after witnesses provided conflicting statements and an essential piece of physical evidence was mishandled. Mm-hmm. Richard, old Frankie here, died in 2020. Yeah. Hmm. Byron Chad Jones and Lawrence Nixon, a cousin of the fifth victim, Laconia Brown were also briefly charged with second-degree murder in the Ernestine Patterson case. Yeah, it's like, it's fucking all connected. Just, and I understand it's a small area, but is everyone just fucking killing each other? Is that what, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, I don't know, there's too many pieces of it that that connect, but you can't get it to fit. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if that makes any sense. Sorry, I'm on a lot of coffee. <laughs> But despite several witnesses implicating them, the sheriff's office did not test the alleged crime scene until 15 months after Patterson's murder and found it quote, failed to demonstrate the presence of blood. What? Oh my God. De- uh, hold on. 15 months. Uh, 15 fucking months. You know what I mean? Like, that's insane. Ah, that messed, up, uh, that messed up crime scene worked, uh, work contributed in part to the collapse of the case against the two men. So they fucked up. Cops fucked up. Either purposefully or accidentally. Either way, they still fucked up. According to case files, Jennings street hustlers with connections to Richard were suspected in the deaths of some of the other women. Brown claims no credible suspects outside the Jennings drug circle have been found, yet the official narrative is still that of a serial killer. So in other words... All signs point to somebody involved in this fucking group or multiple people involved in this fucking group or further as we'll go through this. So but they still say, well, it's a uh, serial killer. Well, of course, who's saying that right now? The fucking official investigation like the police are saying that, right? Of course they would. Why? Because they're trying to fucking cover something up, right? That's what that's where I'm at. Sorry, I'm getting heated. I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm gonna take a deep breath. Another strange connection is that the murdered women of the Jeff Davis 8, a.k.a. the Jennings 8, provided information to law enforcement about other Jeff Jeff Davis 8 victims and then turned up dead themselves. What the shit? Ah, For example, Laconia Brown, the fifth victim, was interrogated by the 2005 killing of Ernestine Patterson, the second victim. Brown, you know, Ethan, the author here, obtained by a task force report in which one witness claims that Brown, the murder victim, spotted the body of Loretta Lewis, the first victim, floating in the Grand Marais uh, Canal before Jerry uh, Jackson discovered her there in May 2005. In 2006, detectives investigating Lewis's murder interrogated Kristen Gary Lopez, the third victim. Do you see see what I'm saying? Like, the the third victim knew the first victim, and the first victim saw the third victim. What the fuck? Ah! Quote, she knew what she was doing. Melissa Daigle Lopez's mother told Brown she trailed off tearing up at the memory quote they were scared them girls I think she knew about it and was just too scared to say Brown also claims that he discovered that all of the women at one point had been informants for local law enforcement regarding the Jennings drug trade when Brown confronted Sheriff Edwards with the allegation that the Jeff Davis eight were informants the sheriff stammered a non-denial quote I wouldn't respond he told me quote if they were informants I would still continue to protect their anani- anani- <laughs> that word anonymity there it is anonymity um he goes on to say I don't know that's the truth I won't comment on it so he doesn't say it's not the truth you know what I mean he just says he's not gonna fucking say anything about it you know plead the fifth one two three four fifth Brown writes that at the end of 2008 a Jennings prostitute warned task force and task force investigators that Nicole Guillory, quote, might be the next victim y- okay you hear that so they're actually like it's they're, they're mm, there's there's premonition to these things where they're 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 worried about you know possible other victims and then they wind up fucking dead what the f-? guillory was known for her street savviness and in 2006 when she was 24 she savagely attack attacked a sex customer with the handle of a sledgehammer holy shit so kind of a bad chick all right Brown says of Guillory, quote, I've reviewed the Paris district attorney office's case files on Guillory, and in at least six cases, the charges against her ended in a null prosequi." <laughs> ah, God. Null prosequi. It's a legal term meaning uh, be willing to pursue on the district attorney's part. Okay, Though there is no record of Guillory's cooperation, excluding a theft case in which she agreed to testify against her co-defendant, snitches routinely have charges null prosequay in exchange for their off the record cooperation, okay. In other words, in other words, they won't go after them. That's what no procès or whatever. They're not going to pursue them as long as they help them out with something else, like off the record. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, well, I heard this. Okay, well then, I won't fucking throw your ass in jail. Makes sense. Uh, "Quote Nicole knew a lot, uh, a whole lot," said Frankie Richard. "Quote about a whole lot." Nicole's mother Barbara would tell Brown, "Quote she was always paranoid." It got to the point where she did not want to go anywhere by herself. She said, I think she could feel that they were closing in on her. end quote with her 27th birthday approaching. Guillory refused even to entertain the idea of celebrating quote. I bought some icing and cake for her birthday. Barbara recalled quote. She said, mama, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to be here. Remember we mentioned that earlier where she just kind of, she kind of knew that something was going to happen to her. Guillory also had her four kids placed with relatives A task force witness supports the claim that in her final days, she, quote, was scared of someone, but she would not say who that was. Quote, she knew who killed the girls. See, fucked up, right? Fucked up. And then she winds up dead. Doesn't sound like a fucking serial killer, does it? Ah, why would a serial killer doesn't do that? A serial killer. It's basically random. You know what I mean? It's random. They find different people. They don't find someone that knows something about somebody and then kills them both. That's not how that fucking works. Oh this listen, we're we're, the, we're about 140 episodes deep, give or take, you know, um, doing some offshoot things here, some little bonus stuff here, you know, little re-releases of like our Christmas special and stuff. This one has infuriated the fuck out of me, probably more than any of the other ones has. It's just it's fucking mind-blowing that this even happens. Anyway, going on. Barbara believes that her daughter was murdered because she witnessed local law enforcement corruption or misconduct, or worse. Quote She used to tell us all the time it was the police killing the girls, Barbara said. Quote, we'd say, Nicole, uh, we'd say, Nicole, a name, something, write a letter and leave it somewhere. Let us know. We can help you. No, mama, it's too far gone. It's too big. I'd rather y'all not know nothing. That way, nothing can happen to y'all. She knew, she knew, she knew, and that's why they killed her, end quote. That's her mother talking about this. You know what I mean? Fucking crazy. Poor mom. Brown writes that several other families of victims have similar stories. He says, quote, Gail Brown, he's sister of the fifth victim, Laconia Muggy Brown. yet yeah, another Brown. So Ethan Brown is the, the the guy who wrote the piece. And then Muggy Brown was one of the victims. Okay, so let's just get that out there. I'll just say Muggy, if that helps. Um, Muggy told me that just before, uh, no, the sister told him that just before Muggy was killed, she worriedly uh, informed her family that, quote, she was investigating a murder with a cop. The cop wanted to give her $500 to tell what happened, end quote. Gail put it as bluntly as Barbara Guillory, quote, she knew what, she, what was going on, quote, Our end quote. She told me, referring to her sister's work as a cooperator, quote, I think it was a cop that killed my sister. What the fuck? Task force witness interviews corroborate the Brown family accounts. One was noted as saying that, quote, Laconia Brown told her that three police officers were going to kill her, end quote. Jesus Christ. According to Brown, the Jennings police force and Jeff Davis uh, sheriff's offices have been plagued by misconduct for years. Veterans of Jennings streets, uh, streets trace the unwinding of local law enforcement back to the 70s when they say cops began getting involved in drug trafficking. But this is not merely street gossip. In March 1990, two local men burglarized the sheriff's office, making off with a staggering 300 pounds of marijuana. According to court, document, court documents, investigators interviewed one of the burglars. He named a surprising pair of accomplices, Frankie Richard and a man named Ted Gary, who was then chief deputy sheriff of the time. Officials brought no charges against Richard and Gary. <laughs> Richard Gary and Frankie Richard in the fucking middle of this damn thing again. And then you got Ted Gary, who was he was the chief deputy sheriff at the time. (laughs) Oh, my God. Can you guys hear my head exploding? Can you can you hear my uh, my blood pressure just hitting the mic? Like that's that's what it feels like right now. From sheriffs using parish funds to purchase personal items allegedly or illegally, sorry, to unlawfully and purpose, uh, purpose, yeah, purposefully stopping cars without estate plates, to improper dealings with inmates, and even the murder of one officer and his wife by another officer, things were fucking nuts. Yes, one cop killed another fucking cop. Boy. In October 2003, eight female Jenning, uh, Jennings cops filed a civil rights lawsuit in federal court against Jennings Police Chief Donald Lucky Delouche. His name is Lucky, and he's a scumbag. A, uh, a gaggle of male cops. Oh, oh so they also uh, filed this uh, the lawsuit against a, a bunch of male cops and the city of Jennings, alleging widespread acts of sexual violence and harassment. Among the allegations in the complaint, a captain who shook his penis at a female officer saying, quote, you know, I like to lick pussy. I could numb it all night. What the fuck? Enforced oral sex on a female officer, as well as a lieutenant who waved a knife at a female officer, warning, quote, girl, I'll cut you. These are cops. What the fucking hell? In January 2013, former Jennings Police Chief Johnny Lasseter was hit with a battery of charges after a, Louis, um, <laughs> a Louisiana State Police audit found $4,500 in cash, 1,800 pills, more than 380 grams of cocaine, and several pounds of marijuana missing from the department's evidence room. What? I don't. I don't get it. I just don't get it. Oh. Ah. In December 2007, Sergeant Jesse Ewing received word that two female inmates at the city jail wanted to talk about the unsolved homicides. Uh, I'm talking about the Jennings uh, ladies here at the time, totaling four. So not all of them were found at the time. He was stunned by what he heard. Ewing said both women told him that, quote, higher ranking officers had been directly involved in covering up the murders. Oh, boy. Brown claims Ewing had long been wary of his fellow cops, and he feared that the audio tapes would simply vanish just as drugs and cash had a way of disappearing from evidence. So Ewing here is um, uh, he's the sergeant and he seems like a good guy so far. OK, seems he seems like he kind of knew what was going on. and He just didn't know what to do about it, because, I mean, you've got an entire police force against you like your your shit's in fucking jeopardy. I lost on jeopardy baby yeah we're still doing that drink up bitches <laughs> anyway um so ewing handed uh, handed the interview tapes over to a local private investigator named kirk menard who rushed copies to the fbi's office in nearby lake charles okay so he got these tapes where they're confessing saying this is what we think's happening or we think's happening and so he's like well i can't just give this away to the to our police force so he gives it to the fbi right cool gotcha Brown goes on to write, quote, Ewing's gambit to grab the attention of the feds backfired. The tapes ended up right back with the sheriff's office dominated task force and Ewing's fears of retaliation turned out to be justified. As a result, the Paris district attorney charged Ewing with malfeasance in office and sexual misconduct because one of the female inmates claimed that Ewing touched her inappropriately during the interview. And of course, Ewing denies it and the charge was dismissed. What the fucking shit? And whoever the FBI officer was or whatever is a fucking asshole. All right. Let's just put that out there. Fuck that guy or girl whoever it was. I don't know. Fuck everybody in this whole thing so far, except Ewing and the victims, obviously, and their families. Okay. I'm going to shut up. Brown says, quote, Ewing and I sat in his trailer at the uh, Paradise Park development in Jennings in July uh, 2011. He is a short, wide-shouldered man with a cleanly shaved head, a grain goatee and the bulky frame of a rugby player. Ewing decorated the trailer with little more than a TV set and a couch, a no-frills lifestyle that he blamed on employment trouble since his termination after 20 years on the job. Quote, I felt screwed for doing the right thing, he said. Well, yeah, you were screwed. You fucking, you got fucking fucked. Fucking no Vaseline or nothing. Just no Vaseline. Just a match and a little bit of gasoline. Sorry, a little ice cube. Okay, although the tapes were never made public, Brown says he had listened to them in their entirety. He claims they provide highly specific information about the murders of two of the prostitutes, Whitney Dubois and Kristen Gary Lopez, as well as local law enforcement's alleged role in covering up Frankie Richard's role in at least one of the killings. (laughs) I'm telling you Frankie Richards all over this fucking thing and he died what two years ago now or or a year and a half whatever 2020 like his his he's all over this shit and what makes it even worse that let's just say that he okay I'm not gonna allegedly he's involved in this right like in in even in the most minute of ways he's still involved he is so callous that he would sit and have a conversation with somebody like oh yeah they were my friends or whatever fuck you the first inmate says that the that a prostitute named Tracy Chazan had told her that she was there when Richard and his niece Hannah Connor killed Dubois. They um, remember they got charged in in that thing and then got released. They'd all been getting high, and when Dubois refused Richard's sexual advances, he quote got aggressive. He started fighting with her, and when she started fighting back, he got on top of her and started punching her. End quote. Fuck. According to the inmate, Chazan then said that Hannah held her head back and drowned her. Jesus Christmas. The two inmates told another story about a truck and a conspiracy between Richard and a top sheriff's officer or office investigator to destroy evidence in the Lopez case. Now, this is fucking. I, I, okay. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Always Sunny. Do you know where Charlie and he's like? got the 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 board with all the freaking lines to it and he's smoking a bunch of fucking cigarettes or whatever that's how i feel right now like i need a board behind me with string going all over the damn place smoking a bunch of fucking cigarettes and just drinking coffee i'm drinking the coffee i'm not really smoking cigarettes but anyway that's how i feel right now this is fucking weird and hopefully you guys are unpacking this as i'm going because i feel like i might be a little bit too flustered to really get it okay hopefully And if you have questions Please, you can uh, look it up, you know, look the stuff up online, do a little more research or hit us up and I will try to unpack it with you or you can help me unpack it as well. You know, no, I know what happens here. It's just fucking really, it's insane. It's all over the place. So um, anyway, the second inmate said Richard put Lopez's body, quote, in a barrel and used a truck to transport it. The truck, she said, was later purchased by, quote, an officer, officer mm -hmm, named Mr. Warren, I don't know his exact name. He bought the truck to discard the evidence. End quote. Okay, so Richard, turd bag Richard over here, which makes sense. His last name is Richard because he's a dick. Anyway, he killed Lopez or him and fucking what's his nuts or what's her no whoever Hannah killed Lopez, put her body in a barrel, took a truck to transport it, and then sold the truck to a cop, right? And by Warren. The inmate meant the sheriff's office chief criminal investigator, Warren Gary. Remember Gary? The first inmate had also spoken of Lopez's body, a truck, and an officer named Warren. So both of these inmates, it's not like they're in the same fucking room together or whatever. They're both telling, like, pretty much like stories here. And I think the whole thing about the allegations about uh, Ewing uh, touching the girl or whatever, I think that was probably set up. Like, they probably went into her and were like, listen, we need you to, you know fucking recant your statement or whatever to him and fucking, you know what I mean? That's what I, that's what I think. I don't know. I wasn't there, but sounds about right with all this bullshit. Public records would seem to corroborate the second witness's account, okay? Follow me on this one, folks. On March 29th, 2007, Warren Gary, the officer here, purchased a 2006 Chevy Silverado truck for $8,748.90 from Connie Siler, a, uh, an associate of Richard Dick, who had just been hauled into the sheriff's office for questioning in the case of a bad check. Okay. So this person, Connie silver Siler, I don't know if it's a guy or girl. So we're just going to say Connie Siler, whatever is being questioned about writing a bad check. And then turns around and sells a truck to the cop Warren that was owned by Dick Richard. You see what I'm saying? On April 20th, Gary, okay, Warren, Gary, the cop, resold Siler Silverado for $15,500, a nearly 50% profit in less than one month. Siler in turn, used profits from the sale, $3,207.13, to pay the parish district attorney's office for the bad checks she had issued. So here, I'm going to buy this truck off you. We're going to flip it, and then you can pay off your restitution of what you owe. Seems legit, right? (laughs) Gary's truck purchase was possibly illegal and definitely unethical. The Louisiana board of ethics, fined him $10,000 in the incident incident. Yeah. Quote, what Gary did uh, with that was wrong. Um, Former uh, sheriff Ricky Edwards told Brown quote, buying from an inmate. That's what was uh, uh, ethically wrong. End quote. He insisted, however, that his office quote had no clue that the truck was even part of evidence in the Lopez case. That didn't, that did not come out until after uh, way after the fact is what he's saying now. But regardless, we all know that fucking the cop uh, Gary knew, right? Uh, Brown says there is some reason to doubt this claim. According to their reports, investigators knew that Siler was one of the last to see Lopez alive. In addition, Paula Gallery a former detective in the sheriff's office who was later investigated for her ties to the Jennings drug scene, recently spoke to Brown and told him, quote, we knew that Connie Siler's vehicle was probably involved. Motherfuckers. In a town where everyone was related and where the atmosphere had the feeling of a vicious family feud, it was Paula's then-husband, Terry Gillery. remember Gillery, the warden at the jail who brokered their Siler truck deal. So the warden brokered this whole thing. He's the one that set it up to sell the truck, according to the Ethics Board report on Gary. Note that he shares a last name with one of the victims is not a coincidence. Nicole Gillery was his cousin. Remember one of the victims, Nicole Gillery. The, the warden. Fight. Uh. <laughs> this is when I need my people here, Jeff and Logan. Where are you? <laughs> because of Warren Gary and Terry Gillery, okay, two members of law enforcement, the Lopez case lost an essential. Uh, because of them, they lost an essential piece of physical evidence. Because of Terry Gillery, one suspect found herself with an alibi. And because Connor refused to flip on Dick Richard and Shazan had changed her story repeatedly, the charges against all of them were fucking dropped. Where's my boo button? God, I missed that button. Anyway. Brown then writes, quote, put simply, the statements from the two female inmates portrayed Richard, you know, Dick Richard and his associates working with the sheriff's office to dispose of evidence in the Lopez case. Yet the sergeant who took the statements was forced out of his job and the allegations were ignored by law enforcement. This is the most corrupt shit. And I'm sure there's probably more out there but, uh, but surrounding a bunch, you know what I mean? This is just fun. This is like something you would see in a really bad, not bad, but like, well, yeah, kind of bad, but like in a, you know, like a drama on TV, which by the way, we're watching Yellowstone and holy shit, every five minutes, somebody dies in that. It's weird. Yeah. I don't know. Whatever. So a review of hundreds of pages of task force investigative re- reports, uh, reports, reports by Brown reveals a series of witness interviews where local law enforcement was implicated in the murders. However, these allegations have never been made public. Danny Berry, a 12-year veteran of the sheriff's office when he died in 2010 at the age of 63, was named a suspect by at least three separate task force witnesses in a single day of interrogations in November of 2008. You got all that? He was implicated by three different investigations on the same day. Quote, Deputy Danny Berry would ride around on the south side with his wife, Mm -hmm, one witness said, and they would try to pick up girls. Barry's vehicle was a small blue sports car. Barry would drop off his wife, Natalie, and she would get the girls. The couple would spike a drink and then take the girls back to the Barry's house. End quote. What the fuck? One witness even told investigators that, quote, Danny Barry had a room in his trailer that had chains, chains hanging from the ceiling and that a person could not see in or out of the room. It's kind of like a freaking torture dungeon or sex dungeon. And listen, again, never going to kink shame anyone you guys do you but if you're hurting somebody or if you have to spike somebody's drink or something like that to get them to do what you want fuck you too okay there was only one task force interview with barry on february 25th 2009 he wasn't questioned about the abundance of allegations against him he was not questioned Do you hear that and there hasn't been any substantial uh, substance aha solid follow-up investigation yeah so there hasn't been why why not Brown goes on to write, quote, as the murders in the parish uh, crescendoed in 2009, Guillory persi- uh, <laughs> participated in a raid on Frankie Dick Richard's family home. This was part of a sprawling investigation by the sheriff's office into a drugs and theft ring that Dick Richard, his mother, and Teresa Gary, the mother of the seventh victim, Brittany, Brittany Gary, were later charged with running in which guns, jewelry, and rare coins had been pilfered from residences across Jennings. Yet, when Guillory turned over evidence, nearly $4,000 was missing. Okay? Guillory, the cop, went in. It's part of this whole thing. Money's missing. These motherfuckers are stealing shit. Freaking victims' mothers and family are all involved in it. Ah! So the theft case collapsed under the weight of serious law enforcement misconduct. Fucking shocker! (sighs) Quote, Guillory denies that she stole or disposed of evidence in this case. Okay, She told me that she realized the money was missing when she was cataloging the evidence from the raid and immediately contacted her superiors. Warren Gary, the former chief investigator who had purchased the truck allegedly used uh, or allegedly used to dispose of Lopez's body, helped catalog the evidence, which is another troubling coincidence. Yes, two turd burglars are in charge of doing this. Shit winds up missing, and guess what? They'll just go back and forth with each other. No, no, yeah, no, yeah, no, she was right. No, yeah, I counted it. Yeah, oh, no, it's cool. It's cool. Fuck you. Ah, She was sent home from work, and even though she offered to take a polygraph test regarding the missing money, she was promptly fired by Sheriff Edwards. Quote, I never even gave my side of the story, she told Brown. Mm Mm-hmm. So now, just, okay, in this, think about this. So Guillory here, this other officer here, this one, she says that when she was cataloging it and she noticed it, that she went and said something. But remember who she went to. She went to somebody who's going to cover that shit up, and then she gets fired, kind of like Ewing did, you know? Yet again, the, car- the charges against Dick Richard were dropped. It was a break that he relishes to this day. Quote, I'm not mad at that, Richard told Brown when he asked him about the missing evidence in his case. Quote, in fact, I thank her for doing that. If she had handled her business right, my mama would still be in jail. What the fuck? So the, he's just so, the, 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 the absolute just callousness of this fucking guy. You know what I mean? Ah! Most of the murdered women seem to know about the other prostitute killings, but at least one victim from the Jeff Davis 8 witnessed a killing at the hands of state and local law enforcement during a drug bust in Jennings that went awry. Yeah, hold on to your bootstraps on this one, because it's just getting fucking... Sorry, I'm making a lot of noise and getting really emphatic with this, folks. Ah! During a drug bust brought on by a tip from a snitch, Leonard Crochet, a pill dealer, was shot and killed by probation and parole agent John Briggs-Becton. Briggs-Becton told Crochet to show his hands, and according to a statement he gave later to investigators, Crochet, quote, then made a sudden movement with his hands toward his belt line, end quote. Believing that Crochet was reaching for a weapon, Briggs-Becton fired his departmentally-issued Remington 870 12-gauge shotgun with a single-shot striking crochet in the chest Mm -hmm. according to a later statement by a fellow probation and parole agent at the raid briggs beckton approached crochet's body muttering oh shit yeah no yeah i that's a pretty good thing to say right there briggs beckton called an ambulance to the scene and the inhabitants of 610 gallop were taken into custody and transported to the jennings police department for questioning Police investigators concluded that they were, quote, unable to locate any items near Crochet's location in the residence, which could have been construed as a weapon. Further, no persons inside the residence at the time of the shooting, whether law enforcement or civilian, could provide any evidence that Crochet had brandished a weapon, end fucking quote. Okay, so he didn't have a fucking weapon on him, okay? They couldn't find a weapon. This guy just fucking bucked him in the chest with a fucking shotgun. Now listen, lots of good cops out there, lots of good cops, lots of good doctors out there, lots of good astronauts, but there's always bad ones of all those things, but bad guys, the bad cops have fucking guns, you know what I mean, get them the fuck out of there, that's it, they they shouldn't be in there, just like bad doctors, get them the fuck, actually bad anything, get the fuck out of there, find any fucking job, do something else, anyway, sorry, get off my soapbox now. That July, a parish grand jury heard prosecutors make their case that briggs Beckton committed the crime of negligent homicide. However, they came back with a, de- a decision of, quote, no true bill. So no probable cause or evidence to show that briggs Beckton had committed a crime. He fucking got off of it. Okay? So now listen to this. Could this be the reason the Jennings 8 were actually killed? It is one theory suggested by some in the parish, quote, the victims were being killed because they were present when Leonard crochet was killed by the police, end quote. One witness uh, that's one from one witness actually told the, uh, the investigators here, quote, the girls were being killed because they had seen something they were not supposed to see, end quote. Even Dick Richard connected the crochet, crochet killing to the murdered women. But of course he would. He's going to put it off on somebody else, quote, Quote, most of them girls was at a raid when that crochet boy got killed. Most of the girls that are dead today were there that night. Fucked up. Brown obtained a witness list from the, uh, the Louisiana Louisiana State Police on the incident. He says, quote, it reads like a who's who of players in the Jeff Davis 8 case, including the third victim, Kristen Gary Lopez, Alvin Bootsy Lewis, who was the boyfriend of the fourth victim, Whitney Dubois, and the brother-in-law of the first victim, Loretta Lewis, And Harvey, bird dog, Burleigh, who later told Dubois' older brother, Mike, that, quote, I'm close to finding out who killed your sister, and was then found stabbed to death in his Jennings apartment. His murders, too, remain, or his murder also remains unsolved. What? There should be some sort of federal investigation in this shit. Oh, my God. I'm serious. I'm so sorry, folks. (laughs) <laughs> this is how 2022 starting out for us here at the Midnight Train. Jesus Christmas. Oh, the slaying of witnesses appears to be a pattern in Jefferson Davis Parish. Soon after Crystal Shabon Wazino, the sixth victim, was found in a wooded area in South Jennings in September 20, uh, 2008, a tip was called into the parish district attorney's office from a 43-year-old Lafayette man named Russell Carrier. Carrier said that he had seen three African-American men exiting the woods. Richard Associate Eugene Dog Irvy, Ivory, you heard that first, right? Richard, Dick Richard Associate Eugene Dog Ivory, Irvin Tyson Mouton, who is named as another possible suspect in the Lopez homicide in the task force documents, and Ricardo Tiger Williams, all people who had, um, you know, goings ons. Go, is that how you said that? Is that going, <laughs> they had dealings with Dick Richard, okay? I'm, I'm telling you, man, that dude is just fucking just right in the middle of this. On October 10th, 2010, Carrier was struck and killed by a Burlington Northern Santa Fe train in Jennings early on uh, Jennings early in the morning. OK, so this is this is a uh, carrier, right? So this is they, they, they were leaving his house. OK, right. Following me. Police Chief Todd Dalber said that, quote, for whatever reason, Carrier laid on the tracks and was run over. Right. This is fucking insane. So Brown concludes his article with information about one of the leading players in the case. That son of a bitch, Frankie Dick Richard, whom we've talked a lot about here. Brown writes of Frankie, quote, Though Richard was well aware that I was deeply investigating the Jeff Davis 8, he never turned me down for an interview and didn't flinch when I confronted him with my reporting. He has a knack for explaining away bad facts and constructing theories on alternative suspects. Of course he does. Deceased deputy Danny Berry is also a favorite in the case. Quote, all these girls or most of these girls was found within a three mile radius of Danny Berry's house. End quote. That's what Richard told Brown. Yeah, Dick Richard. Of course he did. You got to fucking put it off on somebody else. Quote, since he had been dead, nobody died. Oh, wait, let me read that again. Oh, this is a quote from him. Since he been dead, nobody died. Uh, listen, I, I'm I'm Southern. I can read that shit. Uh, he goes on to say, all these motherfuckers on the sheriff's department are some crooked sons of bitches. So he's trying to say that, I just, I don't know. I think they're all fucking guilty. Yeah, I swear to God. Brown describes one interview with Frankie as follows, quote, on an unusually warm and muggy late spring night in 2012, Richard sat shirtless, exposing his meaty upper body yuck on a pair of rockers in the front porch of his family home in Jennings. He has expressionless brown eyes, a thick head of black hair streaked with gray, and a salt and pepper goatee. He was trying very hard to project the image of a wrongly accused, down on his luck, sobered up former hustler. I was a dope addict, a cokehead, methhead, alcoholic, no good son of a bitch, Richard told me. But I'm determined to get my head on right. I'm one year clean from meth and 100 days clean from alcohol and cocaine after 42 years. That's a long fucking time for a motherfucker like me. quote, well, yes, it is Dick Richard. Brown continues, quote, standing nearby on the ground below was an associate of Richard's, a towering african I don't know why I started getting into an English accent for him. (laughs) It was weird. I just kind of morphed into it. I'm used to that. Quote, sorry, quote, standing nearby on the ground below was an associate of Richard's, a towering African-American man in his 30s wearing baggy jeans and a white T-shirt. At one point, he interrupted the conversation to warn me that the story I'm working on will likely put me in the crosshairs of local law enforcement. You a a bold-ass little man, dog, he said. Don't get caught in Jeff Davis Parish at night. Ooh. Brown continues about Frankie Richard. Quote, That Richard continues to sit atop what police files and my own reporting suggest as an empire of drugs and prostitution is no spectacular stroke of luck. He is a prized informant who, according to task force documents, has provided a steady stream of intel to investigators. Uh, Richard was debriefed in 2008, which Brown says challenges another official narrative that no one is talking to the multi-agency investigative team and that all investigators have is a series of unhelpful dead ends. He goes on to say, quote, criminal activity sanctioned by high-level law enforcement is hardly uncommon. A 2011 FBI report concluded the agency gave its informants permission to break the law at least, you guys ready for this? 5,658 times that year. That year, their informants were allowed to just fuck around and do whatever they want because they were just fucking either hiding something or whatever. Dick Richard would push back against the snitch label vigorously, but in May 2012, Kirk Menard, the private investigator, remember the guy that uh, Ewing sent um, the, the tapes to, sent a pair of female witnesses who said they had tips in the killings related to Richard to the task force offices to be interrogated. Quote, do not worry about Frankie. One high-ranking task force investigator told the stunned women, "Quote: Because he works for me." Yep. According to the, according to the witness account, the investigator added that Richard has a task force issue or task force task force issued cell phone. Menard forwarded me an email he sent to the task force outlining his concerns about the interview. Nearly two years later, he is yet to receive a response. End quote. My God. Brown says that the possibility that Richard Dick Richard is just circumstantially connected to all eight of the murdered women has also been undermined again and again. Soon after charges against Richard in the 2007 Lopez slang were dismissed. He and associate Eugene Dog Ivory, who is, according to task force witnesses, a suspect in the murder of Crystal Benoit, beat a rape case. They beat a rape case in which, according to case files, Richard allegedly told the victim, quote, if you tell anyone, bitch you'll end up like the others in fucking quote. G- what? G- I'm glad the son of a bitch is dead. I am. I don't give a shit. Mm. Uh, Brown also recounts another story related to him. Quote, one night, not long, uh, not long before Richard and I met Beverly crochet, the sister of slain drug dealer, Leonard crochet. Remember the guy that got shot in a fucking chest was leaving Tina's bar. A South, uh, excuse me, a South Jennings haunt frequ- uh, frequented by the Jeff Davis eight. Tracy Chazan, the former prostitute who uh, was who uh, who was sorry, who was sorry once charged with being an accessory after the fact of the second-degree murder in the slaying of Kristen Lopez, approached her in the parking lot. Quote, when I was walking out with my ride, Crochet told me when he spoke several... This is coming from Brown, by the way. This is his article. Um, when we spoke several weeks later in the front porch of her home, which is just down the street from the, uh, the Dick Richard family home. Quote, she was screaming out the car with some black people. Quote, you're going to be number nine. Oh, boy. Crochet, Crochet said she reported the incident to the task force. She cleared her throat nervously. Quote, I could tell you more, she said, but I'm scared. I'm scared for my own life. The Jeff Davis 8 killings, she said, quote, started right after her brother Leonard was killed. Leonard, you know, the guy that got shot in the chest. Quote, right after, all them, girl, all them girls were in there at one point. They were all in there for two days in and out. Brown concludes his article by saying the Jeff Davis 8 case is begging for a takeover by the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division. Fucking yes. Amen. They had intervened in a, uh, a now notorious New Orleans Police Department case in 2005 where cops shot and killed innocent bystanders on the Danziger Bridge in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. Fucking hell, New Orleans. Brown claims his investigation raises several genuine questions about the prevailing serial killer theory of these murders. It also indicates that local law enforcement is a hindrance, not a help, to a resolution being reached. Whatever the truth, these eight women and their surviving families deserve a fresh inquiry by an outside investigative body. I fucking agree. Holy shit! What seemed like a pretty clear cut case on the outside here, you know, a serial killer preying on sex workers, turned into that fucking crazy story that we just went through. Holy shit. <laughs> that's all I can say. So what do you guys think? Pretty fucking nuts, right? Yeah, this it, it does remain unsolved to this day. Uh, and if the uh, things Brown actually uncovered are accurate, we're most likely never going to get to to the bottom of it. But, uh, you know, if you guys know anything, if you know anyone that's down there, if someone's heard something or whatever, please look, call the FBI. Don't even fucking call those guys down there because it sounds like the police department is fucking crazy. Well, Davey the Vato, who does our top 10 movies, is actually on vacation right now. And uh, so he will be back next week to talk to us about, uh, you know, the movies and whatnot. In the meantime, I'm going to go ahead and do this. And uh, we've got the uh, top 10 drug horror movies, because why not? Right? Because this thing is drug ridden all over the fucking place with a bunch of douchebags and fucking assholes and shit. Fucking fireballs. I'm Okay. I promise I'm okay. All right, so let's talk about these top 10 drug uh, drug horror movies here. Uh, let's see. Shrooms from 2007, directed by Patty Brattinaw. Uh, writer Pierce Elliott and stars Lindsey Hahn, Jack Houston, and Max Keish. have no idea. The featured drug of this one is uh, cyclobin mushrooms. So I guess those would be, you know, trippy mushrooms. It says a group of American college students get more than they bargained for on a mushroom foraging excursion in rural Ireland. Ireland. I love Ireland. Uh, the promise of trippy cerebral and even spiritual experiences make these natural uh, psychedelics extremely popular among carefree 20-something looking uh, looking for consciousness expansion. Okay? And I knew a lot of guys that did that shit. I know people that do that now. I've never done those. I've never done anything. <laughs> yeah, I'm a goody goody. Hmm. I'm not saying I'm better than anybody. I just never did it because I'm a control freak and I'm afraid I'm going to fucking freak out. But when Tara Lindsay Hahn accidentally eats a toxic death cap mushroom by mistake, a near fatal seizure leads to premonitions of murder. Is the dark entity that descends upon them a mad monk from a now abandoned home for wayward children or something altogether more terrifying? While fans of Cyclobin might not appreciate their warm and fuzzy fungi being demonized, horror fans will eat it up. There you go. And this is on uh, theblood-shed.com. I don't know where Moody found this one at. He dug deep for it. Uh, the next one is Toad Road. <laughs> 2012 stars James Davis and Sarah Ann Jones, Whitley Higuera. Well, I don't know. And the drug in this one is LSD. Yay. That's, yeah, that's great. As opposed to Cyclobin mushrooms, LSD has always suffered a more sinister reputation. The idea that acid can send you on a one-way trip to insanity still holds sway with many. And we are going to do an episode on um, uh, the MK Ultra whole thing that the government did where they were like you know experimenting with soldiers you know giving them lsd and shit and jumping out windows and all that and if you haven't heard of that shit (laughs) we're definitely gonna do uh do that episode so that that should be fun the movie toad road uses the real life urban legend the nine gates of hell as a metaphor for an lsd trip into oblivion the movie is shot in a gritty verite style that blurs the line between fiction and reality but may alienate mainstream audiences toad road Toad Road emotes a palpable sense of tragedy and loss in a morbid example of life-imitating art. 22-year-old lead actress Sarah Ann Jones died the same year the film was released. Cause of death? Drug overdose. Fucking hell. Wow. That sucks. That took a turn, didn't it? Um, This one I have seen. It's pretty crazy. Uh, John Dies at the End from 2013. Uh, Let's see. Stars Chase Williamson, Rob Mays, and Paul Giamatti. Love Paul Giamatti. The featured drug is soy sauce because uh, it's made up. Phantasm creator Don Coscarelli helms this hallucinatory mind fuck based on the novel of, uh, by David Wong. John Dies at the Inn is a potent mix of black comedy and stunning psychedelic visuals. It was pretty cool. The film centers on a slacker played by Chase Williamson and his experience with an extreme metaphysical drug called soy sauce, which opens doorways to alternative alternative <laughs> mouth, to alternative dimensions. Once opened, however, these same doorways allow opportunistic aliens a chance to invade. Yes, the plot is very Lovecraftian, but the presentation is very hip and stylized, feeling altogether fresh. A looping, non-linear story arch almost demands repeat viewing, but the abundance of otherworldly fiends, including a -a one-of-a-kind meat monster, make revisiting the film a pleasure for fans of trippy, twisted horror. Yeah, and I've seen it. It's pretty cool. It's fucked up. Not gonna lie. Next one is Naked Lunch. Oh boy. Yeah, this is Cronenberg. Ho, oh, oh, ho, oh. ho. 1991 stars Peter Weller, Judy Davis, and Ian Holm. This movie is fucked up. Uh, features uh, bug powder, which is um, fictional. Uh, they're all fictional in this one, uh, but the drugs are bug powder, black meat, and mugwump jism. <laughs> <laughs> While it defies easy categorization, Naked Lunch, loosely based on the writings of beatnik pioneer and lifelong addict William S. Burroughs, is absolutely a horror movie. What else would you expect of a film written and directed by David Cronenberg? The story unfolds in a dreary yet timeless alternate universe and follows the hallucinatory exploits of an exterminator and secret agent named Bill Lee, played with uh, Unsettling A Plume by Peter Weller. Peter Weller, if you guys don't know who that is, that's fucking RoboCop, dude. Gigantic centipedes, humanoid reptilians, and living typewriters are just a few of the creatures we encounter as Bill travels from the bizarre metropolis inner zone to perceive freedom in anexia. The entire film plays out like a fever dream with a nearly incomprehensible ending that's nonetheless stunning. Yeah, it's pretty fucking wild. I'm going to lie. It's pretty fucked up. Uh, next one here is Banshee Chapter. No idea what this is, um, but the picture for it is a all-white chick face with red hair, all black eyes, and she's puking up blood. So that sounds fun. It stars uh, Katie Winner, Ted Levine, and Michael Mc, uh, McMillian. Featured drug in this one is, oh, do I have to pronounce that? Dimothetrapl- mm-hmm. Dimothet- mm-hmm. Dimethyltryptamine. Ah, 19. I got that. All right. And it's a fictional government research chemical. Or, yeah, whatever. Like John Dies at the End, Banshee Chapter is clearly influenced by the works of H.P. Lovecraft. And listen, if you guys haven't listened to the H.P. Lovecraft episode, you should go back, because he was kind of a fucking weirdo. Specifically from Beyond, the story and the movie directed by Stuart Gordon, but writer-director Blair Erickson sets his debut film apart from other Lovecraftian horror by incorporating elements culled from actual declassified documents related to... MKUltra, ha, <laughs> Banshee chapter deals with government research chemical used in mind control experiments. No one suspected that the drugs was actually a sort of homing beacon that allows otherworldly creatures to find you and take you. <laughs> what? Oh, that sounds awesome. Ted Levine plays Thomas. Uh, Thomas Blackburn, a Hunter S. Thompson knockoff down to the shorts and glasses, who gives the film a countercultural element that meshes nicely in concepts or with concepts like government conspiracies and alien technologies. Banshee chapter makes excellent use of its found footage presentation and delivers some genuine scares. I'm gonna have to watch that. That sounds badass. I think that sounds cool as shit. Yeah, I'm gonna have to get that one to go. Next one here is Beyond the Black Rainbow from 2010 stars Eva Bourne, Michael Rogers and Scott Highlands. The drug in this one is unknown black liquid. That's what it's called, and it's fictional, so why even fucking say anything? Anyway, critics and supporters both liken Beyond the Black Rainbow to, quote, a bad acid trip. Mm-hmm. The story, if you can even call it that, unfolds at the uh, Ar- Arborea Institute, a facility dedicated to re- uh, reconciling science and spirituality as a means of achieving perpetual happiness. It's a process that involves complete submersion into a vat of thick black liquid, liquid where hellish visions precede unsettling transcendental transformations. There's a teenage girl being held as a slave, tormented and provoked by a cold scientist. She's attended by a, a nurse and a crew of red robots with syringes for fingers. What the fuck is this? I I don't know. A single 10 second shot after the credits credits will have you second guessing everything. Oh, that sounds fun. A field in England from 2013. Oh boy. This is uh, Julian Barrett, Peter F- uh, Ferdinando, and Richard Glover. All right. Wait, is that is that Danny Glover's son? Is that who I'm thinking of? Oh, the rapper? Is that Richard Glover? No. Is it? I don't know. Whatever. Doesn't matter. Set uh, during the English Civil War of the 17th century, a field in England seems a bizarre locale for a film about men in the throes of, mushroom, of a mushroom trip. But writer Amy Jump and director Ben Wheatley insist there's historical support For such a scenario, a Motley Quartet consume a stew made with forage fungi before descending into a surrealist, my God, my face is just falling apart, a surrealist universe of terror and symbology. Like nothing I've seen before, a field in England approximates tripping by employing strobe and other experimental filming techniques. It's an experience that can somewhat be overwhelming at times and could even be a trigger for people prone to seizures. Ultimately, this film... That may only appeal to brave cinemagoers with art house sensibilities. Okay, it's a film. Whatever. It sounds weird and bougie. Next one, Enter the Void, 2009. Nathaniel Brown, Paz de la Huerta, and Cyril Roy. The drug is DMT. Mm, boy. Heavily influenced by the Tibetan Book of the Dead, Enter the Void is the ultimate POV experience. Extremely ambitious and visually stunning, still, it's best to approach this film with some background. It was written and directed by Gaspar Noe. No, Noe? 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 No, the French director responsible for the infamously brutal irreversible. So while this may not be your conventional horror movie, you can expect no to go places. Most filmmakers would never dare to uh, to tread before beginning the extended director's cut. You might want to clear your calendar into the void is almost four hours long. Woo boy! What makes it worth the time investment? Well, amazing hypnotic visuals and filming techniques that defy gravity, time and space. Also, lots and lots of sex. It's basically an art house porno. And a view of penetration I guarantee you've never seen before. <laughs> what? Noah, or no, whatever, actually journeyed to Peru where he consumed the psychoactive brew Hayahuska, uh, which contains the active ingredient DMT, in the name of cinematic research. The results in a singular experience that's sometime, uh, sometimes exhausting, but mostly exhilarating. Holy shit. All right, we've only got a couple more here, and these are good ones. Requiem for a Dream. You guys have seen this one. Come on. It's got Jared Leto, Jennifer Connelly, Ellen Burston in it, and it's, and it's uh, about heroin and diet pills. You guys have seen that one. I'm not even going to get into it. Good movie. Fucked up. Uh, it also has um, um, Marlon Wayans in it, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Anyway, that was a good one. And then Evil Dead from 2013, so that would be the uh, the remake. <laughs> anyway, I still like the original. And you guys know what that is, but what's the drug for this one? Heroin? Why do I not remember that? I'm going to, right, I'll read this one. While the original franchise n- uh, never even broached the subject, yeah, because they didn't talk about that, the 2013 remake reboot of Evil Dead is an outstanding example of drug addiction being used as a starting point for a horror movie. Jane Levy plays Mia, a hero. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They took her there to, now I remember, to get her clean. Okay, now I get it. You guys have seen that. And if you haven't, get off your asses and go see it. Watch the original one, though, because it's better. All right. Oh, boy. That was a big one, wasn't it? That was a huge 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 story and a shit ton to unpack my god let us know what you guys think about that one because uh what a story and listen follow us uh or follow us find us here uh next week where we're actually gonna be talking about a suggestion from uh one of you listeners one of you beautiful passengers and uh it's uh, we're gonna be talking about the uh the deaths wrestling deaths, basically like in the WWE, WWF and you know, all that stuff. We're actually going to go through those and talk about those a little bit. Um, well, not a little bit, but we're going to do an entire episode on that. So it'll be, uh, interesting to say the least and sad too. There's a lot of real sad, real, 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 sad, and some fucked up shit in there too. So if you don't know, like, you know, I'll just say the word Benoit. If you don't know who that is, just listen next week and you'll find out it's fucking crazy. So listen, make sure to stop over to our official website, TheMidnightTrainPodcast.com. At our website, you can buy some super sweet merchandise at our store. And, yeah, you know, you can find the Duke of Fingerbum shirt. You can, uh, the new Skull logo shirt that we have up there. Um, we've got phone cases. I mean, you name it, man. And if you guys want something in particular, let us know and we'll, uh, we'll see what we can do about getting it done. You know, if you're like, hey, I really want uh, a onesie for my baby. I mean, we can make one. You probably don't want to do that. Now we can make it cool. There's kid shirts on there and all kinds of stuff too. So now listen, I've been using this shit for a long time now. Dr. Squatch Soap, we talk about it on a regular. It is changing the way men approach hygiene by providing all-natural, high-quality, healthy products like bar soaps, hair care, colognes, beard oils, and more that make you feel like a man and smell like a champion. All soaps and products are made right here in the U.S. using the finest all-natural ingredients, not cheaply made. Um, or harmfully mass produced. So that's good. You can get 20% off your first subscription. Just head on over to the midnight train forward slash sponsors, or just go to mid, uh, the midnight train and click on sponsors. Either way, click on the banner there and use promo code DSC Squatch20 to get the best damn soap. We actually uh got uh Jeff into it. If I'm not mistaken, his wife got him the Star Wars uh kit. And it's amazing. It's so good. <laughs> uh, so if you like what you heard from us, listen, consider being a producer of the show by heading over to the midnight train clicking on the Patreon button, or just go to patreon.com forward slash the midnight train podcast. Now you can't just go look for it on Patreon because we're quote unquote adult content. Fuck. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so anyway, you can get over there and for as little as five dollars a month, literally five bucks a month, that's all it costs. Like you coffee costs that much, you know what I mean. It's $5 a month and you can get all kinds of cool stuff. Like definitely the bonuses, the bonuses are super fun. It's kind of a chance just for us to kind of like, you know, just banter and talk about some weird shit, mostly about like actual serial killers who have been found or really bad things that everyone's talked about and just take our take on it instead of doing the, cause on uh, the normal episodes here, we try to do like unsolved stuff or weird shit that no one's heard about before, right? Over there, we get to kind of just fucking tear shit apart and talk about whatever. So yeah. So just uh, become a Patreon producer because, uh, you know, we need your fucking money. No. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But anyway, no, you get all kinds of bonuses and you can sign up to get, like, custom stickers, custom uh, posters, all kinds of cool shit. So do that. Tell your friends about it. Tell them to sign up. It's good stuff. Most importantly, do us a favor. Share the Midnight Train with everyone. Word of mouth is how we're going to get more passengers on this beautiful train and continue to bring you weekly episodes. Don't forget to go over and follow us on Twitter at Oh. Uh, On Instagram, at The Midnight Train Podcast. On TikTok, at The Midnight Train Podcast. On YouTube, just look up The Midnight Train Podcast. Also, if you listen on Spotify, make sure to rate us. Please give us a review. You can do that now over there. Uh, Same with over at um, Apple Podcast. Uh, They just added that feature, and uh, you'd be a lot cooler if you did. All right, all right, all right. Reviews are good, and we need more of them. Damn it. So give us more reviews. We like that. It just helps us move up the ranks and stuff, guys. It really... Seriously, that's one thing that like a lot of people don't understand They're algorithms and stuff that have all these different whatever going and it's just super, yeah, whatever. And listen, if you're looking for a new podcast player, check out good pods and make sure to drop us a review there while you're there. Find us, you know, follow us, drop a review. Good pods is a new platform that is making it easier for you to find the best indie podcasts out there. Not just the same top five global corporate podcasts that every other platform seems to fucking promote, you know, Joe Rogan. Just kidding. I I actually love Joe Rogan, but um, anyway, so we can't thank you enough for all the love and support we've received. Honestly, guys, we thank you. We are back full fledged this year. The guys will be back next week. So it'll be all of us talking over each other. I'm kidding. It will be back next week. And, uh, you know, it's 2022. We're going to be fucking killing it and knocking it out of the ballpark. And, um, we have a ton of great episodes coming up, a ton of weird shit, ton of really dark shit. And hopefully you guys are into that, you know, and, uh, listen, a very special thank you to the people who really do just like financially support us and are just there all the time. They're in the, uh, the groups and talking to us and like they have, they've become our family. This goes out to you beautiful Patreon poopers. <coughs> <coughs> to Corey Krakowski, Nathan Diekman, Hank Sanchez, Stacey Luconan, Nicholas Cooper, Caitlin McKinney, Trent Scott, Spencer Dunlap, Jacob Cook, Maggie Brothers, Albert Lopez, Miles Campbell, Brian Gunzelman, Margaret Atkins, Colleen Cox, Pumpkin Escobar, Mac Dougherty, Turner Cox, Sydney Sayer. Gina Madison, Janet Shirell, Laura Randall, Chad Flint, Chris McLeod, Justin Kowalczyk, Rob Webb from the Funbox Podcast. Make sure you're checking out the Funbox Podcast. Good dude over there who is also looking for a co-host, I believe, still. So if you're interested, Christina Skelton and Jessica Bartolome from the Sister Skelton Podcast. That's right. Check the girls out over there. They are just getting over having fucking COVID themselves, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, hopefully they feel better. You know, ladies, you know, much love to you out there. And we hope you're, you're feeling better over there. And fuck. COVID. Seriously. Fuck it. Fuck it. Fuck it. Just stupid. <sighs> anyway, <laughs> Maria Gibbs Chainsaw. Where's his what the fuck? What the there fuck? There it is. Jigsaw, Rick Ressler, Courtney Bachelor, Katie Brabenek, and my boy Bill Birch. So listen, do us a favor. Spread the word. And if you want your name to be mentioned on the show and for us to be forever grateful, become a Patreon producer. Alright? Just become a producer. Become awesome. Get the bonuses. Do we try to drop a bonus once a week. So that means every month you're getting four additional episodes. I mean, for five bucks, I mean, that sounds like a deal to me. I don't know. Anyway, stay safe out there. I hope I didn't suck too bad by myself today. I'm still under the weather. It was a lot to fucking unpack. What a crazy fucking story. If you know anything, if you've heard anything, get a hold of the FBI or something first. Don't call those fucks. Jesus. And always stay safe out there, passengers. And choo-choo, motherfuckers! Go home and get your fucking shine box.